Good morning. So here we are in Romans chapter 11, verses 7 through 10, where Paul says, What then? Did Israel fail to obtain what it sought so earnestly? Well, the elect did. But the others were hardened, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes so that they could not see, and ears that they could not hear to this very day. And David says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Not one of the more uplifting and encouraging passages in Scripture, (laughs) but that's what we got today. So that's what we're preaching today. Here in this passage, uh, Paul is citing actually three different passages of the Old Testament. Uh, the first one is a mashup of Isaiah 29 and, uh, and Deuteronomy 29. Paul had style even though they hadn't worked out the chapter divisions back then. But uh, if you'll recall, he has cited this Isaiah 29 passage before. In fact, uh, you see that uh, back in chapter 9, he, he cites it uh, back in chapter 9, verse 20, and then in chapter 9, verse 33, he quotes Isaiah 28, 16, which is part of that Isaiah 29, 28, 29 chunk of text, quotes that same passage again in chapter 10, verse 11. So there's a sense in which this Isaiah 28, 29 bit is, is underlying what Paul has to say here in Romans 9 to 11. So let's take one last loving look at uh, Isaiah 28 and 29. I'll start in Isaiah in chapter uh, 28, verse 5. In that day, Yahweh, the God of angel armies, will be a glorious crown, a beautiful wreath for the remnant of his people. He'll be a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment, a source of strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. And so here you have that remnant Idea, and we talked a lot about this last week about how throughout this, uh, throughout the Old Testament, and uh, certainly in Romans nine to eleven, Paul is raising this idea that God preserves a remnant of His people. We saw in a number of passages we looked at that God works out His purposes. He works out His purposes in His time, and He sends His prophets to interpret what He what's going on, but. God, after all, is the one who gets to define what those purposes are. And we saw, for example, in the story of Joseph. Joseph says what man intended for evil, God intended for good. I know that you, my brothers, wanted to get rid of me, but as it turns out, God used that in order to preserve a remnant of his people through this famine. We saw the story in uh, in. First Kings that Paul quotes, where Elijah, deeply depressed, runs off into the wilderness to die. And then God sustains him for the journey to Mount Horeb, to this mountain of God. You, you get the sense he's kind of recapitulating that Moses story, where Moses goes up on the mountain and, and uh, God says, now go hide in that little cleft in the rock because my glory is about to pass by you. And, and 
Elijah doesn't have such a glorious experience. Elijah basically is complaining. And God says, what are you doing here? And he's complaining. Oh, everybody's given up. You know, they're, all, they're trying to kill me too. I'm the only one left. God says, you're not the only one left. I've got 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. So get back there and get to work. I've got some people I need you to appoint. And I've also figured out your replacement because I'm getting fed up with you. We saw in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel and in Ezra this phenomenon of God preserving a remnant of his people. And what we saw is that the way God fulfills his promises, the way that God is faithful to his promises to his people, is sometimes and quite often by preserving a faithful remnant of them, by preserving some from whom he will then be able to work to reconstitute his community of faithful followers. Perhaps the most dramatic example of that is the picture you get in Isaiah 11 where you have this stump that's left behind and you think a stump, well, that means the tree's cut down, that means it's dead, and Isaiah says, no, there's going to be a shoot coming out of that stump. The sign of new life from where you thought there was nothing left. And of course, that shoot is what, Kara? That's correct, yes. And the question, of course, that you would ask when you, when you hear this is, all right, great. So there's this remnant. Well, how do I get to be part of this remnant? And the answer, Paul says, is you get to be part of this remnant by grace, specifically by God's grace, not by works, specifically your works. There's nothing you can do that's going to make you impressive enough to God to make him think that he wants to have you be on his team. The fact is, it is only God's grace that is going to make that work for us. And Isaiah, here in chapter 20 and 29, he's preaching to a people who have failed miserably. He is preaching to a people that is about to be overrun. It's about to be taken over. They had been promised security. They had been promised prosperity and peace and health if they only followed God faithfully. But they failed to do so, and so God's people are about to be overrun, and Jerusalem is about to be besieged, and all kinds of awful, nasty things are going to be involved in that, including cannibalism, but we won't hang out on that today, much to the disappointment of some of you. So this is uh, picking up again in verse 14 and 28. Isaiah says, Therefore hear the word of Yahweh, you scoffers, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. You boast, well, we've entered into a covenant with death, with the grave we've made an agreement. When an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, it can't touch us. We've made a lie our refuge and falsehood our hiding place. What Isaiah is referring to here is the kinds of agreements, the entangling alliances that the leaders of the people in Jerusalem had made with local superpowers, hoping to play one off against the other. Spoiler alert, it doesn't work. So this is what the Lord Yahweh says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed. I'll make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. Hail will sweep away your refuge, the lie. Water will overflow your hiding place. 
your covenant with death will be annulled. Your agreement with the grave won't stand. When the overwhelming scourge sweeps by, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it comes, it'll carry you away. Morning after morning, by day and by night, it will sweep through. In other words, God is saying, what you have tried to arrange for your own preservation is going to prove unsuccessful. Isaiah continues, the understanding of this message will bring sheer terror. When you get what I'm saying, when you understand the consequences, you are going to be terrified. Bed's too short to stretch out on the blankets, too narrow to wrap around you. Yahweh will rise up as he did at Mount Perizim. He'll rouse himself as in the valley of Gibeon to do his work, his strange work, to perform his task, his alien task. You're not going to be expecting what God's going to do or the way he's going to do it. After all, it is God who works out his purposes in his time and in his way. So stop your mocking or your chains will become even heavier. The Lord Yahweh of hosts has told me of the destruction decreed against the whole land. So it's coming down, Isaiah says. It's coming down because of the faithlessness of God's people. In particular, and especially those who are in positions of leadership. So woe to you, chapter 29. Woe to you, Ariel, the city where David settled. Add year to year. Let your cycles of festivals go on. Yet I will besiege Ariel. She'll mourn and lament. She'll be to me like an altar hearth. This is the Hebrew pun. Ariel is an altar hearth doesn't work so well for us. Isaiah also had style. I will encamp against you all around. I'll encircle you with towers and set up my siege works against you. And brought low, you'll speak from the ground. Your speech will mumble out of the dust. Your voice will come ghost-like from the earth. Out of the dust, your speech will whisper. But your many enemies, speaking of dust, will become like fine dust. Like the ruthless hordes will be like blown chaff. That means there will be a lot of them. And suddenly, in an instant, Yahweh of hosts will come with thunder and earthquake and great noise, with windstorm and tempest, flames of a devouring fire, and then the hordes of all the nations that fight against Ariel, that attack her and her fortress and besiege her, will be as it is with a dream, the vision in the night. seems like somehow the story is changing. It's like when, the, when a hungry man dreams that he's eating, but he wakens and his hunger remains. As when a thirsty man dreams that he's drinking, but he wakens faint with his thirst unquenched, so will it be with the hordes of all the nations that fight against Mount Zion. Be stunned and amazed. Blind yourselves and be sightless. Be drunk, not from wine. Stagger, but not from beer. Yahweh has brought over you a deep sleep. He's sealed your eyes, the prophets. He's covered your head. The seers. For, for you, this whole vision is nothing but words sealed in a scroll. And if you give the scroll to someone who can read and say to him, read this, he'll say, I can't, it's sealed up. Or if you give the scroll to someone who can't read, which is kind of a jerk move, really, when you think about it, 
If you say, read this, he'll say, I don't know how to read. What Isaiah is saying is the people are, are not getting this. They're confused. They're, they're not understanding. And in fact, it is Yahweh himself who has brought over them this lack of understanding, this lack of clarity, this inability to see, to discern. Why? Well, because the Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouth, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. When they worship me, they're just following rules that people made up. And that's why, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. So woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from Yahweh, who do their work in darkness and think, oh, nobody sees this, nobody's going to know. You idiots turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. What, shall what is formed say to the one who formed it? Oh, he didn't make me. Can the pot say of the potter? He doesn't know anything. No, Isaiah is saying, you guys have it flipped entirely upside down. It is, of course, the potter that tells the clay what the clay is going to look like, not the other way around. It is the potter who knows, not the pot. But what Isaiah is talking about in this passage, and this is one of those sometimes, in a sense, confusing passages in the prophets where you get a, a word of judgment, a word of destruction, but then you also get a word of restoration. Because even as Isaiah is talking about this coming day of Jerusalem's destruction, he's also looking forward to this day of restoration. He says, in that day the deaf will hear the words of the scroll, and out of gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see. Once more, the humble will rejoice in Yahweh, the needy will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. The ruthless will vanish, the mockers will disappear, and all who have an eye for evil will be cut down. Those who with the word make a man out to be guilty, who ensnare the defender in court, and with false testimony deprive the innocent of justice. Therefore, this is what Yahweh, who redeemed Abraham, says to the house of Jacob. No longer will Jacob be ashamed. No longer will their faces grow pale. When they see among them their children, the work of my hands, they will keep my name holy. They will acknowledge the holiness of the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. Those who are wayward in spirit will gain understanding. Those who complain will accept instruction. So you have a word of judgment and a word of restoration. And, and as I said, this quote from Paul is a mashup of Isaiah 29.10 and, and Deuteronomy 29.4. This is when Moses is renewing the covenant. These are the terms of the covenant that Yahweh commanded Moses to make with the Israelites in Moab. The Israelites are there on the east side of the Jordan. They're getting ready to cross into the promised land. Moses is speaking to the, the whole assembly in one of the, his last addresses to them. And, 
Yahweh commanded Moses to make this covenant with the Israelites in Moab in addition to the covenant he made with them at Horeb. Moses summoned all the Israelites and he said to them, Your eyes have seen all that Yahweh did in Egypt to Pharaoh, to all his officials and to all his land. With your own eyes you saw those great trials, those miraculous signs and great wonders. But to this day, Yahweh hasn't given you a mind that understands or eyes that see or ears that hear. I mean, think about it. Did it occur to you, Moses says, that for 40 years in the desert, your clothes didn't wear out, your sandals didn't wear out, you ate no bread, you drank no wine or other fermented drink. Well, God says, look, I did this so that you would know that I'm Yahweh, your God. And that's kind of a hard thing to hear, isn't it, that God didn't give his people a mind that understands or eyes that see or ears that hear. This is, this is not the only time we get this. You remember from last week when we looked at Isaiah in chapter 6, right, that big story with Isaiah in the throne room, and he says, here am I, send me. Well, after that, he hears the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? He said, Here am I, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Now, that's not forever, I said, how long, O Lord? He answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But just as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they're cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. You get that remnant picture again. But you also get this Picture of God befuddling, blinding, deafening his people for a time. And you may remember from back when we were in Matthew. Same thing happens. Jesus starts teaching in parables. His disciples come to him and say, um... Maybe that's not the best way to go about it because these people don't understand what you're saying. And by these people, they mean we. And he replied, look, the knowledge of the secret of the kingdoms, the secrets of the kingdom of heaven are being given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and he'll have an abundance. Whoever doesn't have, even what he has will be taken from him. And that's why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they don't see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. There, Jesus is quoting that passage. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You'll be ever hearing but never understanding, ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears. They've closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, 
and your ears because they hear. For I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous men longed to see what you see, but they didn't see it, to hear what you hear, but they didn't hear it. Again, Paul says, what are we going to say? Are we going to say that Israel sought earnestly but didn't obtain this? Well, the elect did, but the rest didn't because they were hardened. The best way I can understand this idea of being hardened, this idea of God hardening, is that this is what is going to happen to any of us upon exposure to the holiness of God. This is what all of us have coming to us as broken, sinful creatures. That's not the end of the story, necessarily. But for those that aren't the ones chosen, it is. That got me to thinking about corned beef. Naturally. BJ had a big uh, dinner on Friday night for the uh, international students. Uh, Her technique for uh, corned beef is she says she just boils it for a couple hours. My technique is uh, I roast overnight in Guinness. I braise it overnight in a low, slow oven for about 12 hours. The key there is that you have to cover it. Because the first time I tried it that way, it didn't go so well. By way of a public service announcement, if you put a piece of corned beef in a pan and you dump a bottle of Guinness over it and you put it in a 200-degree oven for 12 hours and you do not cover it, your corned beef will be hardened. (laughs) As will be the Guinness. And behold, it is very difficult to scrub off the pan. No, you, you cover it up, you get the moisture, everybody stays happy, it's, it's great. It actually works well f- with the, uh, you can buy the cheaper cut, the point cut. If you boil that for two hours, you're gonna be, it's going to be like chewing gum. There's all that connective tissue, you need to break that down over time. That has nothing to do with the sermon, I just want to let you know since tomorrow's St. Patrick's Day. But yeah, if, if it's not covered, if it's not protected, it will be hardened. And it is not a good thing to be hardened because there are consequences for those who are hardened against God. Let's go to Psalm 69, which is the second passage that Paul quotes. Psalm 69 is is, uh, one of the most frequently cited psalms in the New Testament. The voice of the one speaking is... Attributed, this is attributed to David, but many people hear in this the voice of Jesus when you hear him say things like, I'm, my eyes fail looking for my God. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. So many are my enemies without cause. Those who seek to destroy me. And goes on and says, may those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me, O Lord Yahweh. Of hosts, may those who seek you not be put to shame because of me, O God of Israel, for I endure scorn for your shake your sake, and a shame covers my face. I'm a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my own mother's sons. 
for zeal for your house consumes me. The insults of those who insult you fall on me. Right? Zeal for my house will consume me. That comes from whom? A story about whom? Jesus. Yes, that's correct. Remember, he does the whole thing with the money changers in the temple. John says, yeah, well, after all, it's written, zeal for my house, your house consumes me. So, moving on, starting in verse 19, you know how I'm scorned, disgraced, and shamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there wasn't any. For comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. Again, this is evocative of the story of Jesus on the cross being given vinegar when he says, I'm thirsty. So, may the table set before them become a snare. May it become retribution and a trap. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and their backs be bent forever. Pour out your wrath on them. Let your fierce anger overtake them. May their place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in their tents, for they persecute those you wound. They talk about the pain of those you hurt. So charge them with crime upon crime. Do not let them share in your salvation. May they be blotted out of the book of life and not be listed with the righteous. I'm in pain and distress. May your salvation, O God, protect me. I'll praise God's name in song. I'll glorify him with thanksgiving. And this will please the Lord more than an ox, more than a bull with its horns and hoofs. The poor will see and be glad. You who seek God, may your hearts live. Yahweh hears the needy. He doesn't despise his captive people. So let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and all that move in them. For God will save Zion and rebuild the cities of Judah. Again, this sort of the ending of the psalm here seems to have to come from the era of the exile. For God will save Zion and rebuild the cities of Judah. Then people will settle there and possess it. The children of his servants will inherit it, and those who love his name will dwell there. Again, you have the same thing. You have a a word of judgment and also a word of restoration. A word of punishment for those who are God's enemies and a word of redemption for those who are his beloved chosen people. It's the same song sung in so many different keys by the prophets and the Psalms. The bottom line I think Paul is trying to say here is that God has not failed. God will not fail. God does not fail. We do, though. People fail. People fail miserably. And God is not surprised by the fact that we fail. He knows well, we read, that we are dust. And his grace is sufficient to deal with our failure. But the only way that's going to happen, the only way God's grace will deal with our failure, is if we throw ourselves on his mercy. If we try to shape ourselves up, it's just not going to work. Remember the story that 
Sandy Mason, who's a pastor at Grace for many years, would, would he tell the picture of the, describe the picture of somebody trying to lick themselves clean like a cat when there's a waterfall right by. It's, it's yeah, laugh at it. It's stupid. And that's exactly what Paul's saying. It's not going to work. And see if you look one last time, just because I can't help myself back in Isaiah. That next passage in chapter 30. God says in verse starting in verse 15, this is what the Lord Yahweh. The Holy One of Israel says, In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. You said, no, 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 we're going to flee on horses. All right? Go ahead, try that. You said, well, we're going to ride on really, really fast horses when we go away. Well, therefore, your pursuers will be really fast too. A thousand will flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you'll all flee away until you're left like a flagstaff on a mountaintop, like a banner on a hill. But Yahweh longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion. For Yahweh is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. I want to close with this quote from N.T. Wright. Talking about this passage, he says that the heart of Romans 9 to 11, there lies the humility that recognizes God and, as God and doesn't try to second guess or criticize what God has planned and done. Cynics and skeptics of every age, not only the much vaunted humankind come of age of the Enlightenment, have, of course, questioned everything, challenged everything put God in the dock and declared that such a being either does not exist or if he or she or it does, then they disapprove of his or her or its actions. Fearful that every authority is necessarily oppressive and that every order that does not proceed from within oneself is manipulative, our present-day orthodoxy has left God on the margins and aid to spiritual well-being for those who feel they need it. But if God is the creator, we are creatures. If God is holy and we are sinful, and if that's not the case, then why have we been putting up with Paul for this long? Then there is a proper and grateful humility that is neither oppressed nor manipulated, a giving to glory to God that enhances and does not diminish our true humanness. There's a time to ask the hard questions, and Paul encourages us to do so. But there's also a time for recognizing, like Job, that our questions have missed the point, and that God's answers are, for the best of reasons, final. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would be people who have the kind of humility that recognizes you as God and doesn't try to second-guess you and what you have planned and what you have done. Give us the grace to receive 
gratitude, the word that you give us. Give us the grace to recognize that it is you who determines what it means for you to work out your purposes. It is you who determines what your time is. Pray that we would participate joyfully in the dance that you have laid out rather than trying to fashion our own. All this we ask in Christ's name. Amen.